if any of you have noticed, the football season is full in full swing. I'm sure Becky has not noticed at all. Um, and perhaps you might have even noticed how a certain team from the beloved Midwest whooped up on a team from the East Coast, but there was much rejoicing in the Lobdell household. Even Jack was like, ah, you know, he had no idea what we were cheering for, but he was very excited. I love football season, and I know some of you guys do too, and some of you could literally not care less about what a big bunch of guys do on a field with a pigskin, right? Uh, some of you are like into basketball. That's kind of how I feel about basketball. And they were like, yeah, basketball. I'm like, don't really care, right? Uh, and humans are funny that way, aren't we? The attention and the devotion that we give to sports or other hobbies can be very intense. And so just out of curiosity, I Googled, what are some unusual hobbies, some usual unusual things people give their lives to, you know? And the interwebs did not disappoint. Oh my, did they not? I Googled, what are some interesting hobbies, things that people give their lives to? Um, in the UK, there is um, an, an event, I guess, a sport, I don't know, called extreme ironing. He is ironing while he is tubing down a river. Ironing. So I just, for a personal story, I don't iron. I smooth things with my hand repeatedly until they are ready for public wear. That's me, okay? This guy, ironing on an inner tube, he apparently gives his life and attention to that. That's cool. In China, it's very popular, uh, professional dog grooming, competitive dog grooming. That poor poodle, that poor poodle, right? There's an Elmo on his backside. Or in Thailand, people give their lives and their attention and their time and their resources to intricate soap carvings. Wow, right? That's very impressive what you can do with a bar of soap, who knew? Well, I for one have never been much of an athlete. I have certainly never embarked upon uh, extreme ironing. I don't even do regular ironing. Uh, but I was really, really into running for a season of my life, and I'm not so much now for a number of reasons, but uh, my very first race, I was signed up to do a 10K, okay? It's 6.2 miles. And I go to this church, it was part of a church, and uh, they were doing this like for AIDS in Africa type thing. And I show up and I'm so nervous. You know, I don't have any cool gear. I have like a t-shirt and like some like capri pants, right? And I'm ready to run, more like a shuffle, a glorified shuffle. And um, there are these people there that they're obviously, that's their life, okay? So they have these little, they're like, I don't know, in their 50s, these guys. And they have these little tiny shorts on and these little tank tops. And it's like October 15th, so it's like 30 degrees. And they're wearing this, um, they're scantily clad. Let's just say that, okay? And they are chugging black coffee right before they run. And they are just ready to go, you know? And I'm like, oh, my God. I should go home, right? But it was such a positive experience. And I had like, I had like drank the Kool-Aid, okay? I, I started running, doing races all the time. I would get up at these ungodly hours to go and beat the heat in Missouri and run. And in the winter, I would wear like copious amounts of clothing to run in the snow. And I did all these races. But the best by far was the Kansas City Half Marathon. Because you show up to the starting line and there are 11,000 people running with you okay and you're just like I'm a part of something oh my word it's so amazing and the people next to you like they're just like you they're they're wearing the, the tape on their shins because their shins are like, like the, the splints and their toenails have fallen off too and like they're all bruised and bloody and they're like let's do this and you're like yes and you're so excited because you're a part of something, you know, and you're, you're running and people are cheering your name. They don't even know you, but your name is on your bib. And they're like, oh, Stephanie. I'm like, yeah. And at mile 10, they start giving you gummy bears. You're like, this is awesome. 
this is fantastic, right? And you just you just have this so much energy to run 13.1 miles. It's kind of crazy. Ask Otera, she knows, right? But um, but you felt like you were a part of something, and that you were doing something that mattered, and you were doing it with people that shared your passion and your enthusiasm, and it's this awesome feeling. Now, whether it's football or basketball, that's your thing, or soap carving or running or extreme ironing, the reality is all of this stuff speaks to what it means to be human. Because to be human is to desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, to be connected to something that matters, to be connected to other people that share our passion and our enthusiasm, to give our lives to something that counts. And so that's why people, you know, take up causes like recycling or the wildlands preservation or equal access to health care or the right to bear arms or the abolition of the death penalty or uh, stricter sentencing for violent offenders, whatever, just fill in the blank. Because this past week we were reminded as we remembered September 11th and remembered all the places where we were when it happened and all those things. And we were, we were awakened during that time, if we weren't already, I sure wasn't, of the power of small groups of people radically devoted to a cause, right? That's where terrorism comes from. And many of the things that, many things can be said about those organizations, but if we've learned nothing else over these past years, we've learned that they are devoted to their cause, heart mind and body because there's this longing of them to belong to something that counts something that matters bigger than themselves and through a dark and twisted path that's where they find themselves giving their lives away for a violent destructive cause but the desire is a part of what it means to be human this is not a new phenomenon people have always hungered for purpose for a mission, for a calling, to be a part of something bigger than themselves because we were made to give our lives away, to be a part of a bigger story. Now, whether we realize it or not, all of us are in search of our place in that story, in that something that is bigger than ourselves, something that's worth giving our lives away for. And that's how we arrived at our core value as we're reviewing our core values these last few weeks, last weekend, these weeks to come. The core value of we give our lives away. We believe we are a part of something bigger than ourselves and we join in God's work so people can know Jesus. We were made to give our lives away, to be a part of a bigger story, bigger than our own little story. We were made to be a part of God's overarching story, his history of redeeming all of creation and including us in that good work. And honestly, preacher confession, the church has not done a fabulous job in this department. We have often failed at presenting the story of God as a compelling narrative that merits giving one's life. Other voices have been given much more compelling stories, compelling narratives, like, for example, the narrative of materialism. You know, and I've confessed this on multiple occasions, my, um, in, like my, passion, my need for luxurious lawn furniture, right? How the Target catalog has made it clear that if I have the appropriate lawn furniture, my life will be full, will be content, I will have more friends. My life will just be better in general, right? That's the lie of materialism, okay? But it's a narrative that sucks us in. It says, look what could be if you had our stuff. But there's other false narratives, like the one of nationalism that says, my citizenship is my primary identity, and it gets to determine my values. That's a false narrative. Or the, the narrative of pleasure, meaning what feels good is right. And if it doesn't feel good or it's hard, then that means it's bad. That is a narrative that, we sh that shapes our lives. 
And the church has often failed at presenting the story of God as a worthy alternative to those stories. And instead, we've offered up these like anemic narratives that fail at capturing people's hearts and their imaginations. Now, first, and I think still most common, the way in which we have presented, failed to present the story of God as a life-capturing narrative, and we have reduced it instead to a lesson in hell avoidance. Now, in this not-so-grand narrative, the purpose of God's work in a nutshell is to save our skins from the fires of hell. That's it. Nothing much to give our life to. Uh, Really, it's just giving your death to God. Nothing terribly inspirational or meaningful, especially if, and this is the case with many who are outside the church, you're not even sure you buy in to the whole health thing anyway. We do, sure, right, whatever. But if you go out into the world and you say, hey, come be a part of God's great big story, it'll save you from hell. And they're like, well, I don't even believe in hell, so that's a non-starter. Are we really comfortable saying the entire God's gospel work is to just save me from hell in the future, but has nothing to say right now? What a lame story. A story that requires virtually nothing from me other than repentance, just keep your hands clean until Jesus comes back. But that's not a passionate, heart-rending, throw-yourself-into-it kind of story. And I hear your amens and your head nods like, oh, that's, that's right. We can all pretty much agree that's a lame story. And frankly, it's not faithful to the gospel one bit. But this big old story of God is not just about hell avoidance. We agree. But that's not the only empty narrative that the church has presented as well. The second way the church has dropped the big story ball, so to speak, is by presenting the story of God as about my personal abundant life now. This is the Jesus is my Advil or Band-Aid or cheerleader type narrative, is it not? But preacher, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. But are we really comfortable saying that abundant life that Jesus is talking about is about getting what we want, how we want it, and when we want it? Are we comfortable saying that the entire story of God and God's redemptive mission is all about me having a good, comfortable life? I don't know, but that just doesn't seem like something that's worth giving my life away for. Frankly, it seems kind of self-serving and short-sighted. In fact, both of these understandings of the gospel, whether it be the gospel of hell avoidance or the gospel of Jesus is my Advil type thing, are both self-serving. They're all about me, and they're void somehow. Not something that I want to give my life to. And so what is a story that is worth giving my life to? What is compelling enough to demand our life, our all? Well, it is the kingdom of God story. See, we give our lives away because we are part of something bigger than ourselves, the kingdom of God. And we join in God's work to help people come to know Jesus, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the realm in which God reigns supreme because we believe, crazy people that we are, we believe that somehow through Jesus' life and death, and resurrection, that the kingdom of God is breaking into this world right now through the people of God. 
through acts of restoration and reconciliation and redemption now because of Jesus. And the Spirit has been poured out into Christ's body, the church, so that we can be agents of that reconciliation, so that we can live as citizens of that kingdom right here and right now, being a part of what God is doing to heal broken things and broken people. Now that is a story that's worth my life being a part of transformation and redemption right now as we eagerly anticipate Jesus returning to set all things right. We don't just sit on our hands hoping to avoid hell, and we certainly don't just sit on our hands waiting for God to make our life nice and easy. Instead, we give our lives away to what God is doing to bring about healing in creation. That is a story that is worth my life. That'll preach too, right? But what does that look like? What does it look like to give your life away for the kingdom of God? To join God's work so that people can know Jesus. Now, the preacher default here is to give you a to-do list, right? Is to give you, give your lives away by doing this and this. Whatever usually fits the pastor's uh, programmatic agenda, right? I need people in the nursery, thus that is what God is calling you to. Uh, it's, it's fabulous. It works every time. No, not really. <laughs> but the thing is, let me be clear. Um, giving one's life away is not a ministry method. It's not a tool that we preachers use like some manipulative mallet to get you to do stuff. Giving one's life away, pouring oneself out for the kingdom of God is a pattern of faithfulness. It is a way of seeing the world and living in the world, and it is shaped like a cross. It is cruciform way of being. See, this pattern of faithfulness, this giving one's life away, it is a rejection of those false self-serving narratives and instead an intentional embrace of the self-emptying way of Jesus. The self-emptying way of Jesus. That's quite a term, isn't it? Now, we are going to do a deep dive this morning into that phrase. And if you'd like, you could turn to your uh, Bibles, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read this, uh, that scripture from Paul. And it's probably, for a lot of you, it's a super familiar passage. Paul is speaking to a church that's a lot like us. It's a church that loves each other deeply, that wants to be shaped into the image of Jesus. And Paul is calling them to give their lives away, both for each other and for the gospel. So hear the word of the Lord this morning from Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. 
thanks be to God. Now, I want to look really closely in your scripture at verses 6 and 7. You see, in verse 6, Paul says some pretty crazy stuff. And for us, it's really, really normal. It's not shocking at all. But if you were the first people to read that, Paul has just said, Jesus is basically, he is equal with God the Father. So what that means is what is true of the Father is true of the Son, and what is true of the Son is true of the Father and the Spirit as well, even though the Spirit is not directly referenced. So what is true of Jesus is true of God the Father, which means, now this is important, what Jesus says and does reveals the character of God. Do you catch that? What Jesus says and does reveals who God is, okay? And then here comes verse 7. Jesus chooses not to exploit or grasp or use his own advantage the privileges that one would associate with being, well, I don't know, God of the universe. And instead, the text tells us he emptied himself. Now, your version might say empty or made himself nothing or made himself of no reputation or something like that. Now, I'm going to get all greeky geeky on you for just one second. The word that Paul uses here is the word kenosis, and it, it means, it literally means to completely remove or eliminate any elements of high status by eliminating all privileges or prerogatives associated with that rank. It's like ripping off all of your status patches. What do they call those? You know what I'm talking about. The things that says that this is who I am and this is who I'm in charge of, right? Ripping those off and saying, instead, I'm scrubbing the toilets. And so Jesus... Paul gives us this image of Jesus who is one with God the Father, pouring himself out, divesting himself of any privileges of his status as God, and freely choosing to become human. And not only that, but when he becomes human, he continues that self-emptying pattern by submitting himself to death, even the shameful death on the cross. Now, this isn't news to most of you. You know this story. Jesus became human. He endured death to set us free from sin and death. But the thing is... I'm not sure we fully understand or maybe fully grasp or embrace the simple fact that what Jesus did revealed who God is. What Jesus does reveals who God is. So when God in Jesus pours himself out in the incarnation, becoming human, and in the crucifixion, he does it because that is who God is. It wasn't just, well, even though he was God, he did this crazy thing. But it's also because he was God, he did this crazy thing. He poured himself out for us because that is who God is. He is this self-giving, self-sacrificing, self-emptying God who pours himself out for the sake of the beloved. And that beloved is us. And so Jesus, in this emptying act, demonstrates that this is exactly who God is, self-giving for all of creation. But here's the thing. We often think about what God did in Jesus, that self-emptying act, as just a thing God did, a, a what, an event in time that brought about our salvation. And it was. It did, right? But what if what God did in Jesus would not just a what, a thing in time, but also a how? Now stick with me for a second. What if what God did in Jesus, he wasn't just acting on our behalf, but he was showing us how to act? Did you hear that? What if God in Jesus wasn't just acting on our behalf, but was showing us how to act? 
what if God wasn't just pouring out God's very self on our behalf, but showing us how to pour ourselves out on behalf of the world? Just maybe Jesus becoming flesh and submitting unto death for our sake was not just the means of our salvation, but also the method, the way in which we are called to walk. What if, as those who are made in the image of God, who are being continually shaped into the image of Jesus to an ever-increasing degree, we not only just received that great self-emptying act of Jesus on our behalf, but also conformed and shaped our lives to Jesus' way of being. What if we walked in that way, in that self-giving, self-emptying Savior and gave our lives away, poured ourselves out for the world in order that the kingdom of God might break in through the people of God so that people might know Jesus? Paul says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. As Jesus was given for us and for the world, so too we, in gratitude and in obedience, give our lives away for the sake of the world and God's inbreaking kingdom. In learning to walk that path of faithfulness and obedience, of formation and conforming to Jesus, we become a cross-shaped people, a cruciform community. Now, one author that I've been reading lately said this. He said, a people that is characterized by communal kenosis or self-emptying for the good of the world, is both the means and the goal of God's saving action here and now. Basically, we, God's people, God shaping us into this self-emptying people is not just, it is God's way, first of all, the means by which God acts in the world. It is the means through which people experience God through us, right? But not just are we the means, but we are also the goal. We are what God is aiming for. God longs to create a people that is shaped into the image of Jesus. And so not only as we pour ourselves out, as Christ demonstrated, we are God's means of grace in the world. And the same time, the goal, what God is aiming all of creation toward, a people shaped in the image of Jesus. Pouring ourselves out for the world. But here's the thing. What does a cross-shaped community look like? Like practically. What does it look like to practice pouring out our lives to the world in conformity to Jesus' example of pouring his life out for us? I think in part, at least, it looks like a starfish and not a spider. Now, I've told you this story before, so hopefully this is ringing some bells. There are these social scientists, and they were, they were studying some organizations and how they were structured. And they determined that some organizations were more like spiders. Now, the military is a really great example of this. They have a central unit of command who tells the organization how to function, like how to move their legs, so to speak, right? Now, the legs, from what I've been told, do not have much of a say. It is the central command that says, this is who we are and what we do, right? Make sense? Now. The pros, they're a very unified mission. That's how our military is strong and does what it does best. High accountability, high organization. 
Now the con with spiders is that all you have to do to stop a spider is squish the center, right? And when you don't know who's in charge, the organization struggles, right? And if you're a spider, you, you, get, you really struggle, right? Now starfish, on the other hand, are a little bit different because they don't have a centralized brain. They have this uh, like network of nerves, so to speak, that tell all of their tiny little tube feet how to work. And the cool thing about a starfish is that you could literally, this is gross, so do this. If you cut off uh, an arm of a starfish with the scissors, it would not die. In fact, it would grow a new arm. Isn't that cool? And then if like a bad guy grabs the starfish, like you can tell I have children, I said bad guy, a predator would grab the starfish and it was in danger, it could eject its arm and the starfish could live and grow a new one. Isn't that cool? So there's not a central unified command. It's like everybody's kind of working in this like organic wiggly thing, right? Now in the book of Ephesians, Paul doesn't tell the church to be a starfish, but kind of. He says this in Ephesians chapter 4, and this is from the message, so listen. It says, in light of all of this, this gospel news, here is what I want you to do. While I, Paul, am locked up here, a prisoner for the master, I want you to get out there and walk, better yet run, on the road that God has called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily pouring yourself out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. You were called to travel on the same road and in the same direction. So stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who rules over all, works through all and is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. But that doesn't mean we should all look and speak and act the same. Out of the generosity of Christ, each of us is given his or her own gift. The text for this says he climbed the high mountain, he captured the enemy, and he seized the booty. He handed it down out in gifts to the people. Is it not true that the one who climbed up also climbed down to the valley of earth? And the one who climbed down is the one who climbed back up to the highest heaven. He handed out gifts above and below. He filled heaven with his gifts, filled earth with his gifts. He handed out gifts of apostle and prophet and evangelist and pastor teacher to train Christ's followers in skilled servant work, working within Christ's body, the church, until we are all moving rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's Son, fully mature adults, fully developed within and without, fully alive like Christ. I want us, the church, to live into this beautiful text, to be, in a sense, a holy starfish working together to embody the kingdom of God right here, right now in our church and in our community. And I want all of us to embrace what God has made each of us to do. Not waiting like a spider for Tommy and I on high to say, you do this and this and this and this and this. But rather as a network of believers, we embrace the gift that God has given us and we function in this organic, beautiful way as God has shaped us to do pouring out our lives on behalf of the world. Now, and this is a pastoral promise this morning. We promise as your pastors, 
that we are not going to micromanage you or bottleneck the work of the Spirit. We want to trust you and trust what the Spirit is saying to you to equip you and empower you to do the work of ministry to the best of your abilities. Now, that is what we are trying to learn to do with our pastoral staff, to say, this is who God has made you. I want you to live into that and let's stay on mission. And we want to do the same with you that says, this is who God made you to be. What does it look like for you to put those work, those gifts to work for our mission? We want to equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry to join God's kingdom work. Now, this is the thing. When we conflate the pastors with the work of ministry, or the pastors with the church and say, ah, if the pastor's doing it, then it's a real church work. This is what happens, is that we end up with a very passive, consumption-oriented congregation and some really tired pastors, right? And so instead, we want to challenge you to reject that passive consumption of church life. Because this is not a gal the gas station, folks. We don't just come for our holy fill-up. We pour into you and you go out and just come back again next week. No, it's a place where we are gathered by the Spirit of God to be empowered, to be encouraged, to be taught and strengthened. And then each of us scatters out into our various places and spaces of life to do what God has made us to do, to empty ourselves out for the mission of God in this community. But we also want to challenge you to reject those alternative big stories that are vying for your heart, you know they are, that materialism and power and security and achievement, and instead give your life away to something that matters, the kingdom of God, breaking in to this church and this town. That is worth giving your life to. And we do it all. For love, for the love of God, who in Jesus poured himself out on our behalf. And we do it for love for neighbor who was created in God's image. May we, the church, rise up and walk the path of Jesus, who not only acted on our behalf, but showed us how to act. The band is going to come, and we're going to conclude with a worship song. But we did want to provide you with some very practical ways. If you're not sure what it looks like for you to serve in this church right now, out on the high tables, there are some papers that says serving opportunities. There are some places we have some needs. And if your gifts line up with our needs, we would love to partner with you in that. But don't be limited by that either. What God has made you to do, there's a place for you to serve and to give your life away for the gospel of Christ. Let's continue, uh, conclude with worship. God in heaven, we thank you for your revelation in Jesus. We thank you that you did not just act on our behalf, but Lord, you have shown us how to act, how to live into this call to pour ourselves out, to give our lives away for the sake of the world. Lord, you have done that. You have acted in that self-giving way on our behalf. And may we, in obedience and gratitude, conform to that way of Jesus. Would you show us what it looks like for us to live together as a body of believers, giving our lives away according to our giftedness, working in this beautiful, organic holiness, according to the ways in which you have made us. Would you let your spirit loose among us that we might respond in obedience. 
We love and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, did you extend your hands to receive the benediction this morning? Beloved, Christ Church, may you embrace the act of God on your behalf, but may you also be shaped in acting in the way of Jesus, pouring yourself out for the good of the world as Christ poured himself out for you. Go in action and go in peace. You are dismissed. Amen.